America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. And Ed, this is such a treat. We have a third Verisage Institute colleague with us today, senior fellow and founder of Ignition Consulting Group, Tim Williams. Welcome, Tim, to the Soul of Enterprise. I am delighted. Uh, pleased to be here. Thanks. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, you know, I have to go back, Tim, to the first time <clears throat> that I heard of you, and it was from Tom Finneran from the 4As who, who told me, you need to read this guy's book, and then you need to meet him. And he actually sent me a copy of your first book, yep. Take a Stand for Your Brand which I read in December 2005, just to give you some historical context. Wow. I think we met in January of 2006 for the right. very first time. And do you know why Tom Finneran connected us? Uh, I do. I think I, I, think I remember, uh, because we were both uh, used Monty Python clips in our presentations. <laughs> That's exactly right. That right? Said, yeah, that's exactly right. He said, you've got to meet this guy. You're both nuts about Monty Python. <laughs> and it, it was nothing, Tim, about, you know, what we shared intellectually or that wow. we had similar ideas. It was that we were both Monty Python. Wow. Nuts. You know, I, you, you're, yeah. And so we should be very thankful to uh, Monty Python for that, right? Because Absolutely. Uh, otherwise we may not have made this, uh, what I think is going to be a good lifelong partnership. <laughs> well, it's just great to have you here. I, I know you how busy you are and how much travel you do, so to uh, make the time from your schedule to do this is just fantastic. But folks, uh, Tim, I, I call him the Don Draper of the Verisage group, and I know that's scary. Okay, yeah, well, hold yeah. on a second, because you know, you know, Tim, that Ron knows absolutely nothing about Mad Men, because he's never watched he the never show. never watched one? Okay. So now he's, and now he's calling you Don Draper, which, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> not exactly, I mean, for maybe from a creative side, pretty complimentary, but yeah. Don Draper, not like one of the high-quality people. No, but I, yeah. So, so let me give you a, let's lead off with a softball question that right. can be inside and you only you can answer for me and Ron won't know what the heck we're talking about. Right. If you were a character on Mad Men, who would you be? Oh my gosh, that is a hard question. Uh, boy, you're going to have to let me uh, think about that one. I, I guess uh, wow. Maybe um, 
Nazi, but they're all uh, drunkards and lecherous. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> really so, but, uh, pick, but let me tell one. you my answer. And, and, right, and, yeah, and give me your answer. Without, without, sans the sex change, I have you as Peggy. You know, uh, that comes about as close as, yeah, I was going to say Peggy. We, right, yeah. That's, that's probably good because she, <laughs> she was the most, uh, I think she had her head on straight. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, there you go. So, okay, now we can go back to our regularly right. scheduled program. Take, right. Carry on, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Tim, why don't we start here? Why don't you tell us about your work experience? Because I, I find it kind of fascinating. You've got a, a, a long history in the ad business. Yeah, I'm a career uh, ad guy. Uh, started in uh, the, the place that you kind of have to start, I think, if you want to be serious about a career in advertising. So I started in New York City. Uh, did really did the Madison Avenue thing, and you know, which is of course why you call me Don Draper. I know um, with some uh, of the large multinational firms. I just felt like that was the the place to learn the business. And uh, looking back on it, I'm just so glad uh, that I did. It's a great perspective for me because later, about ten years later, I uh, decided to take the plunge and start my own firm, uh, which is still operating successfully to this day. Um, my last real job uh, as um, in, in the agency uh, management uh, role was with R&R Partners in Las Vegas, and they are famous, famously known for the What Happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas uh, campaign, which uh, was uh, crafted when I was there uh, in the role of president, and uh, Ron likes to rib me about that one. Ron, what's your famous question? <laughs> yes, Tim. In fact, it was the first question I asked you when we met. I said, I asked Tim, Ed, um, Tim, tell me, how did you, how did your agency price for the Vegas campaign? And oh. do, do you remember your answer, Tim? One fifty an I, hour. I, I, I'm afraid it was by the hour. Yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I think I, you were looking at your shoes when you said it. <laughs> I think I had a pretty lame answer. And and what a but what a great example, right, of of lasting enduring value. I mean that that is. You know, about three months after that campaign was launched, we put together a, a TV a, a video that that showed clips of people all over the world. Uh, you know, late talk, talk show hosts and and you know, popular TV sitcoms where where that phrase was just being quoted and repeated all all, all over the globe. And so, talk about creating incredible lasting value. Well, Tim, don't what, what do they call them at uh, Crispin Porter? Don't they call them cultural anthropologists? Yeah, you the, guys change the culture with that that slogan. Yeah, and that's that's you know this is an interesting philosophical question um, uh, that is asked of other uh, disciplines and industries. But it, it, does advertising uh, does it lead culture or is it led by culture? And right. the, the leading edge agencies are, are always of the mindset that they want to be they want to be leading culture they want to help create pop culture not just reflect it so yeah i think that's so there's a class of uh, strategic planner in ad agencies today that has a title account planner brand planner uh, communications planner and and at crispin porter bogusky they call them cultural anthropologists but that's their role is to understand how to impact pop culture 
Right, right. That's excellent. And I have to ask you, too, your experience with Ogilvy. I mean, you know we had Rory Sutherland on, and yeah. he's an Ogilvy guy from the U.K. W- was Ogilvy your first job, or were you somewhere else before uh, them? That was my second job. I, I started at a firm uh, called Marsteller, which uh, is better known for its sister uh, firm Burson Marsteller, which is now one of the largest PR firms in the in the in the world, uh, and uh, and that's where I cut my teeth. Great place to learn, and then uh, from there to Ogilvy. Yep. Right. Did you ever get a chance to meet David? I did. Yeah, I did. He was he was still uh, active in the agency, although he had uh, he had moved to his castle in Tufu, France, and uh, was would would would. Uh, Spend his days uh, writing, you know, handwritten notes and sending them around by courier around the globe. Uh, and if you were, uh, you know, the, the the high point of anyone's career at Ogilvy was to get a, a handwritten note from from David himself, which um, I actually uh, did happen to me uh, for a campaign that he particularly liked when I was working there. Right. Did right. you get a chance well, to stay at the castle? Rory Rory uh, said he got a chance to stay at the castle. No, I haven't seen the castle, but I know several several uh, agency uh, uh, people who have. Yeah, they say it's quite, it was quite a trip. You know, Tim, in your first book, Take a Stand for Your Brand, and, and we will, fo- uh, folks, post the show notes up, and we'll link to all of Tim's books and maybe some other interesting things as well. But in that book, you talk about agencies need to do what they do for their customers, which is build a strong, distinctive, memorable brand. And I guess it's kind of like the cobbler's kids have the worst shoes. And, you know, as one person at Ogilvy in Europe told me, the plumber has the worst toilet. Dennis <laughs> these, has the worst, yeah, teeth. Yeah, these, yep. these, ag- these agencies help their customers, their clients build these great brands, but but they don't do it themselves. And why do you think that is? Well, you you and Ed see this uh, every day in your work. It, it, I think it is particularly problematic in professional services because we we have this mindset that we're in the service business, and so therefore clients always come first. The client a client priority always trumps uh, an internal uh, company priority, and so everything that's not client related gets backburnered and. An agency working on its own brand is one of those initiatives that they they know they 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 should do and maybe could do, but because clients are always coming first, they just never are able to to um, spend the time. The, the, the second uh, element to that, which I think is probably more the real reason, is it's just so difficult to be objective about your own brand. It just is, you know. You, you, you. It's hard to read the label to a package if you're inside the package, you know. Um, right. <laughs> so, so you, they need the outside influence. They need the outside facilitator um, to to come in and just, you know, be uh, a little more to, to reflect back to them what they what they feel they they aspire to be, but also to give them the perspective of what else is happening out in the industry. Right. It's kind of like why authors and actors have agents, right? I mean, because they have that dispassionate, uh, objective view. Yep. I can remember reading your book, Tim, and just the the take a stand for your brand and just pumping my fist in the air going, God, this guy gets it, you know, and he's quoting Drucker and he's, you know, even though it was was about an industry that I didn't have a lot of familiarity with, except for the work I had done with the four A's. 
But one of the things you say in there is you say standing for everything is just another way of standing for nothing. And one of my favorite lines is you quote somebody who says, you can measure our agency by the clients we don't have. What a counterintuitive insight. Yeah, I, I have just loved that thought uh, ever since I heard it. It was from one of the iconic uh, New York agencies that created the BMW campaign, the ultimate driving machine. And they were just, oh, it was a firm called Amarati and Purus, and they were just so known for being a principled firm that was willing to be selective about their their clients, they were willing to resign clients that that they felt they couldn't do work that was reflective of their firm, and they, you know, so so that's what they that's what Martin Puris uh, said and meant when he when he said that is that if you want to really understand what we're about, look at our client roster and notice who's not there. Um, right. It's you know who's not there are, are all the big. Clients that other agencies are prone to take because they're these big cash machines and money makers. Uh, we we don't do that. That's not why we're in business. Right, and one of the things you point out in in both your books, because we're going to be talking about your your later book to your your latest book, but uh, the, the the essence of positioning a strategy is sacrifice. It's more about what you don't do. It's more about saying no than than what you do select to do, and I found that to be very true as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean that's that uh, thought has been uh, phrased a, a lot of different ways. I, I've come not to use the word sacrifice anymore. I, I've replaced it with trade-offs because I think I think sacrifice just sounds too negative. It sounds like you're giving up something that you really need and that you really should have, and that's not really the case. I mean, it's just trade-offs. Its strategy right. is just trade-offs, and one of my favorite uh, uh, similar quotes is the, the Michael Porter. Uh, his definition of strategy is ch- strategy, uh, and a good one-sentence definition of strategy is choosing what not to do. I mean, that's that's strategy. It's right. easy to say what you are and what you do. You know, we can rattle on this this big long bullet point list of what we do, and heaven knows we do, especially in professional services. You know, law firms, accounting firms. You go to the websites, and it's like, wow. Okay, well, what don't you do? You have all these practice areas. You offer all these services. Um, and the the reaction from the customer, from the prospect, is no no one firm can be that good. In all right. <laughs> well, Tim, we need to take a break. But when we come back, I also want to I want to stay on this topic just for a moment more and and ask you something about what Steve Jobs said, which I think is a very counterintuitive line. But first, folks, um, I want to remind you that we do have our show notes up on verisage.com slash TSOE, where we recap every show and, and uh, link to the books and other videos that we mention during the show. And if you want to get a hold of us, uh, myself or Ed, you can email us at TSOE at verisage.com. And you can also follow the show live at, on Twitter at hashtag TSOE. But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. 
Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. That was Mannheim Steamroller. Thanks for doing that, Ed. Good clip. Yeah, I, I love I love Mannheim. We had to get it in there. Well, folks, we are here with the founder of the Ignition Consulting Group uh, and our Verisage colleague. He's a senior fellow at the Verisage Institute, Tim Williams, a gentleman that has taught me everything I know practically about uh, the advertising business. And Tim, just on your point back to strategy, and it's it's about trade-offs, as you say, not sacrifice so much, but trade-offs. I like that. You know, I'm reminded of something that I saw Stephen Jobs say in an interview, and I literally had to stop the video and go back and replay it. He said, I am most proud of what Apple doesn't do rather than what it's done. Yeah. And, and that just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, he. I've got a, a collection of a couple other quotes uh, of his that are just, just they're saying the same thing. And I mean, it, it's basically, and you know, we could go into a, a, if you've read his biography and you know his, the, you know, how he was influenced by Zen Buddhism and simplicity of design. And I mean, we all know kind of how his brain works. So the the simplicity of Apple's products, that that same kind of thinking uh, and philosophy is reflected in their business strategy. I mean, when when Jobs uh, came back to Apple, um, uh, you may remember at the time Apple had something like 300 products. Right. And uh, one of the first things Jobs did was say, uh, guys, we are going to now focus on not 300 products, but five. Five, right. And I brought, remember those days. And brought everybody's focus right back to uh, to doing uh, what what he thinks that they they really do best. And so even today, I mean, you look at Apple, uh, and I, I have a I talk about this in some of my positioning workshops. You you look at uh, two large well known technology companies, uh, Hewlett Packard, which is a fine company. You know, I've got several of their printers here in my office. Uh, they have fifteen thousand uh, SKUs product codes. Apple, the most valuable company uh, on the planet, has 60. Right. And that's, uh, you know, that is a, as good an example uh, as I can point to of the, the power of focus. Right, right. Excellent. Go ahead, Ed. Yeah, and just I was just at the Apple Store. Tim just upgraded my iPhone, iPhone 6 today. Yep. Um, and, and it was just a 
completely simple, painless process to trade in my old iPhone, got the new one up and running by the time I left the store. Now, it hadn't downloaded all, all my apps and stuff, but you know, I, I explained to them that I had to get out of here because I got to go do ra- a radio show, yeah. and, and they were, they were you know, more than willing to make, you know, accommodate me and tell me what, what was what. And I don't think that they would have said yes to me if they, they weren't sure they could have done it. Either, yeah, yeah. Um, because that's just the, just the way they op- operate. But I want to just uh, segue a little bit into something that's near and dear to my heart, Tim, and that is that is your idea of purpose. Well, you did a workshop for us at the Strategic Leadership Association about a year ago, and spent a lot of time on on purpose. And I know you you distinguish it from mission, don't you? Yeah. Well, yes, only maybe semantically. I mean, it's really semantics. I think I think. The, the idea of mission is important. I just think that that particular concept and that word has been so abused over the years that it's kind of like quality or leadership. You know, it doesn't really mean anything. It, it's, it's these uh, meaningless kinds of statements that hang in aluminum frames in corporate lobbies across America. Um, so I, I prefer, I prefer the language purpose. Um, and in fact, I kind of dissect um, uh, principles from purpose because I think um, I think these are two different concepts. Purpose is why you get out of bed in the morning. Purpose is the reason that you're in business that transcends collecting a paycheck. And you know it's very it's very difficult for for most companies to know what their purpose is. If if the company wasn't started by a charismatic founder like a Steve Jobs, um, a, a lot of companies really struggle with that question. So I found it useful to, to, to kind of break down, you know, not, not talk about mission and vision and values, which, uh, you know, that's still valid, that those are still useful um, ways to, to look at, at business strategy. But I prefer purpose, which I just defined, and principles, which are your uh, rules of engagement. Pr- principles are the defining, uh, the, 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 the guideposts uh, that, that help you make day-to-day business decisions, and I've got some pretty, pretty strong views that, about that as well, because if you read the most company statement of values, it's just as bad as our mission statement, right? It's this, you know, it's this list of predictable kinds of uh, values that you'd find in every company, um, and in fact, you, you guys maybe heard me talk about this. I, I, sometimes in workshops, I do this magic trick uh, where I say to the audience, uh, Tell you what, you you uh, take a pen and paper, and I want you to write down the three things that come the first come to mind when I ask you the question, "What are your company's core values?" And so while they're doing that, I'm writing on a piece of paper, predicting what they're going to say. And when uh, you know the, the time is up, I say, "Okay, how many of you wrote the word uh, honesty?" Ninety-five percent of the hands go up. How many of you wrote integrity? Same. How many wrote respect? Same. I mean, that, that, there's the holy trinity of corporate values right there. Uh, right. But, but the, the point is that, that they're not differentiating. It's not, you know, you would never work for a company that's dishonest or didn't, didn't respect you or didn't have integrity. But, so, so the standard really is what, what is it that differentiates your firm that, that not every other company could claim? 
Right, and that, and that's what I wanted to get into because I, I do think that you that like you said, I think that that purpose is the better word now, mostly because the mission statement has been something that's that that's been so maligned. Yeah. Uh, it ju- just because it hasn't been used, and uh, I think there's the quote in your book is uh, from Joey R- Raymond is yeah. like a tombstone in a cemetery. The mission is unveiled, and then we visit it once a year, <laughs> exactly. and which is a great quote. But 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 that and so purpose I think is a better way of explaining it. Also fits in with the Simon Sinek stuff about your the why of the yeah. organization and, 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 why, and purpose, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the same kind of thing. But one of the things that you point out, which I think is so critical, is that your purpose should be something that is controversial, that is should be defensible. Maybe even, even can I use the word edgy? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and why do you think that that's important? Because I think most people want it to be more milk toast. <laughs> well, that's the problem with milk toast, right? That's the problem with honesty, integrity, respect as, as core principles. Um, to me, one of the, and, and I'm going to kind of jump around here between purpose and principles, if I may, uh, just to go back to principles for a minute. Uh, one of the, uh, the litmus test for me for principles is can you logically argue its opposite? Right. Because you can't logically argue the opposite of honesty, right? You know, you're not going to work for a dishonest company. In my business, it's it, one of the things that, that uh, agencies do that everybody doesn't want to do, they're upset about it, they wish they had the you know self-confidence not to, is do spec, speculative, creative work when uh, pitching new business. And so agencies will spend weeks at their own expense developing, in, in, in effect, giving away their, their highest value product. And so, so here, here's an agency in London, BBH, who, who starts in the, you know, in the, in the, late 80s, and, and one of their core principles is we will never do speculative creative work. Yeah. And so the London papers published these uh, business sections, you know, recipe for disaster, here, 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 who's, who are these arrogant people who think they are not going to have to pitch like everybody else. And, and now, years later, they're one of the most respected uh, agencies on the planet. So that's a differentiating principle because you can, you can argue it's opposite. I think that is so important because you, you, with the, so many of the things, like you say, re- respect, integrity, trust, that they're they're all out there. They mean the same thing, and and it, you know, I I put myself out there on my Twitter account as a corporate iconoclast. Right? Mm, that's yeah. That's kind of my my tagline for this. I I want I want to see these things broken down and destroyed. You know, like the timesheet, like the performance review. All of these things that are just accepted, uh, th- because they, I think they actually end up doing spiritual, emotional, whatever you want to call it, harm to people. Yeah, and and same with the the, the same is true of these milk toast mission statements and vision statements and values. I mean, they just don't they just don't mean anything, and and so then people become so uh, immune to them and just disinterested, and oh no, not another mission statement, you know. So. So you you really have to you have to go out of your way to do something that that you you look you look at this list of uh, the stated purpose and these principles and you think wow that's either a company that I would really really like to work for or that's a company that I really really wouldn't want to work for right that to me then you've done your job yeah have right. you have you heard the story of uh, of uh, Ernest Shackleton and the safe return doubtful ad that yeah. he took out great example right. yeah so, yeah. You know, it, it, low, low pay. <laughs> We're yeah. probably going to die. Right. <laughs> 
but you're going to have an adventure. So if you're right. interested, right. and he exactly. had you know hundreds of people turn out for for the the ad, and and Peter Block, um, who I know you're, you're aware of, suggests yep. that that's that's the way that we should do our own uh, ads when we when we're looking for people. You know, management keeps changing its mind. We're really not exactly sure what we're doing, but we have like to have a lot of fun, and we yeah. we believe what our purpose is more important than in the end what happens. So come come along for the ride. Sure. <laughs> So, so then you know what kind of organization you're going to work for. Um, I mean, it, it, I, this is true of principles, purpose, and positioning. And, and you know, no coincidence there. So I'll start with P, right? That's in my first book. <laughs> Everything has to start with P. Um, I, I think they all have to be polarizing. And, and we don't have to think about that in a negative way. Um, but but we, we want to, you know, one of my favorite quotes uh, from... Who, uh, a, a true madman, uh, Bill Bernbach, is you know when you when you uh, when you stand for something, you'll always find some people for you and some people against you. And and wow, that, that rubs a lot of people wrong. So well, I I want people to like me, but I don't want people not to like me. Well, that comes with the territory. If you're going to take a, st- I mean, there are plenty of things about Verisage Institute for people not to like, right? Right. And you're proud <laughs> yes. of that because that's what defines the Verisage Institute, and that's exactly uh, the, the the philosophy and the framework that that every uh, business enterprise has has to have. Well, Tim, let me just follow up on that. You actually say in your book, uh, "Positioning for Professionals: The Successful Brands Are Able to Position Themselves on a Spectrum Between Love and Hate, and Either Side is Desirable, but the Middle is Death." Yeah. Right, because the brands, the, 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 the most successful brands on the planet tend to be kind of polarizing, you know, right. love them or hate and, them. Um, and, and I found it really odd that you, quote, you even quoted Rush Limbaugh by, and his line, moderates, by definition, have no principles. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was, re- you know, another Limbaugh quote is, there, there's no book in the library, great moderates in history. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, moderates aren't interesting. They're just not interesting. And moderate companies are not interesting. Moderate positioning and business strategies are not interesting. They're not compelling. They don't, they don't give you a choice. You know, right. you've got to give your prospects and your customers a choice. What are they signing up for? And um, if you try to stand for everything, that choice is not clear. It's not compelling. I mean, another good way to think about this is, would you rather be strongly um, attracted uh, attractive to a select group of prospects or just mildly appealing to a broad group of prospects you know that is one of my favorite quote of yours tim and let's pick pick that up after this break you know i did once have a t-shirt though that said the middle of the road is where the white line is and that's the worst place to drive so that's love it, <laughs> love it. Yep. all right well we do have to go to a commercial break and but again you can get a hold of us at T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. Alternatively, for show notes after the fact and to see a biography of Tim Williams and, and get links to his books, go to Verisage.com slash T-S-O-E. And, of course, on Twitter at pound T-S-O-E during the show. And we did have a couple tweets about you, Tim, during the show. So we're, we're happy to, to, to see you've got a fan base out there. But okay. now, now we've I'm got worried. a – yeah, now a word from our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort? 
and do it faster. What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's Azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King. For a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. I'm Ed Kless. I love the to the strains of Mannheim. Steve Roller is our member music. Very happy to have that on on board. Uh, Tim, before we left the break, you uh, run run brought up a quote of yours that when you did a workshop for the group that that I am a uh, leader of. Uh, you can be moderately appealing to a large group of people or intensely appealing to a small group of people. Which would you rather have? And I remember the audience reaction because I generally sit up front at these things and kind of observe the reaction of folks. And it, there's a stunned silence in the room. <laughs> and, and, and I wonder, is that is that a common experience when you talk about that particular subject? Because it – it really is. It hits you like a ton of bricks. One of my, my mentors calls it a BFO, a blinding flash of the obvious. And all yeah. of a sudden you're like, oh, crap. Yeah. What am I? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's a particularly good uh, way to, to frame the argument for focus. But, um, boy, it doesn't, you know, it, we actually as humans, we have a hard time with this concept because it, it's hardwired into our psyche to to copy. And, you guys have read this uh, in, in some of my uh, writing, I think, but the, the, I, I've read several books by anthropologists who've studied this very topic, and they say this goes way back to our you know, survival instincts because the, the, what's, what's, the most, what, what's the best way to stay alive when you're surrounded by poisonous plants and dangerous animals? It's to copy the successful behaviors of, of, of others. And so... That's, that, is, that runs very deep in our, in our human nature. So we have to actually uh, go against our nature. And I, I, I think this is what makes it so hard. We have to go against our human nature and not copy a, a behavior that serves us well in, in, our, in, our, in surviving in life but doesn't serve us well at all in business because we have to do just the opposite in business. Yeah, and you know it's funny because we, we we talk about uh, we talked about this I think I think with Rory Sutherland, but this this idea of karaoke capitalism. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read that I book back from yep. two thousand four, right? Yep. Yep. And you know, as, as, as and I love the analogy of karaoke, right? As drunk as you are, and as drunk as the audience is, you're still not Frank Sinatra. You know, so what what makes what makes you think that if you if you just do the same things that Jack Welch did that you're going to be GE. <laughs> right, exactly right. Yeah. 
And, you know, just to a larger point, I, I've come to believe that, that most marketing principles, uh, of course, business strategy, positioning strategy is, is the, the most important of them all. But more, most marketing principles are, are not only counterintuitive, they are just not common sense. I mean, some of them are the exact opposite of common sense. And so this is a hard topic for, for a lot of business audiences when you, because the, the logic would say you should, you should target a large market, right? Larger the market, the more the potential, the, 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 the better your business space. And of course, the, it is the opposite that's true. And, and Tim, your, your latest book published in 2010, Positioning for Professionals, and I love the subtitle, by the way, How Professional Knowledge Firms Can Differentiate Their Way to Success. I, I can't tell you how envious I am that you got Wiley to allow you to use the <laughs> term the knowledge, knowledge firms. firms. <laughs> they wouldn't let me my, use it. He's bitter. He's bitter, means. Tim. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but in, in there, you, you and, and this is one of my favorite, I, I got lots of favorite quotes from you, but this is one of my favorite that I just think is so stark. You say, a brand can't stand for two things at once. Yeah, I know that's pretty uh, that's pretty harsh. Uh, I do think that's true. Um, brand a brand stands for the, a brand is the, the the customer's idea of you. That's what a brand is, and right. so you can be a company, you can be a product, you can be a service, you can be a, a law firm. It's their idea of you, and which idea do you want them to hold in their head? So if you if you want to be both the the high value thought leader and the low cost uh, you know provider you can't do that under the same brand if you want to do that form a second brand right it'd be like selling Rolls Royces and Chevys or Kias out of the same dealership it just wouldn't be incongruous yeah and and the brands that, that try to play to the middle I mean back to Ed's white line analogy it, it, think of think of every struggling brand that you can think of and these are all brands that are trying to play to the middle. In the middle. And you know, another... Oh, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No, please, please. I, I was just going to say, another thing that you really focus on, too, is, is, is the idea of focus. And we've kind of talked about it a little. But you bring up this idea that, that there's a diversity tax. And you use the, uh, I think, the analogy of Coke versus Pepsi a lot. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the diversity tax? Yeah, the, the, the Wall Street types, I mean, you can Google this. They, they call it the diversification tax. And basically, they, they, the, the, the investment community knows that the more diversified a company, public, private, or otherwise, the, the, uh, the lower their margins are going to be. And this has been studied and mapped out and published in academic papers for 20 years. So if you look, the most diversified companies in uh, America are among are, are generally the, among the least profitable. And uh, you know, I hate to name names, but these are like these are companies like ConAgra and Sara Lee that are very diversified. You kind of don't know what what they stand for. They try to do a little bit of a lot of things. Companies that are very focused, like like Coca Cola Company, that's just in the beverage business. I mean, that's all they do is, is beverages. They're very profitable, and this this holds true for professional service firms uh, just as well. It's uh, so it, the other way to think of it is a complexity tax, right? You you might as well add it to, as a line item on your on your income statement. The uh, just you know write down there on your before tax profit add complexity tax because you pay it. The more diversified your company is, the more you pay in complexity tax. 
And, right, and, but and, and, and Tim, on on that, I, I'm sorry, Ron, to interrupt because no, just it's just the flow here. You, you uh, be, and I get that it's counterintuitive, but you're right. This has been written about, studied. It's, oh yeah, it's it's be it's beyond a question anymore. It is beyond dispute. Yeah, beyond dispute, and yet. How many companies are still doing it? And, and, and even sm- everywhere, small, big, doesn't matter. Right. Be, because, I mean, uh, yeah, are we because, just stupid? <laughs> well, yeah. Look, we're just, following our, we're just following our instincts. Honestly, that's what I believe. We're following our instincts. Our instincts are to, to, to copy what other companies are doing uh, and, we're, and, and to, I mean, ask anybody in business who hasn't studied this question. You know, what are your, what are your plans what are your growth plans? Well, we're going to uh, add more services next year. We're going to diversify. We're going to get into some lines we didn't have before. You know, their, their plans are always about diversification. <laughs> They're never about well, we're going to the way we're going to grow next year is we're going to narrow our focus. You know, you, you'd have to look a long time to find a company that would give you that answer, even though that's the right answer. Tim, it's interesting. I love the way you say instead of being afraid of focus. You should be afraid of mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that reminds me of uh, General Shinseki, is it? Uh, yeah. What's his favorite Shinseki, famous yeah. line? Yeah, you're gonna, yeah. if you don't, you don't like, like change, change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And what's um, great about that is, okay, here's, here's the dude who gets thrown out of the <laughs> Department of Agriculture because he can't keep up with the pace of change. So yeah. you can be like this brilliant guy and utter something so smart but still not get it. Yeah. The the other theme that you talk a lot about too, Tim, is the specialist versus the generalist, and and this is certainly appropriate to professional firms, but even any business. But can can you kind of explain some of the advantages between the specialist and generalist? Because I think this debate is dead yeah. in the professional world, but it still rages on. Well, and the professionals are are still you know. You know, some some are more uh, some get it better than others. I mean, medicine they get it. You know, and and I use uh, this very simplistic uh, analogy all the time to help illustrate the differences between generalists and specialists. So, who let's take medicine? Who makes more money, the heart surgeon or the family doctor? Right, okay. heart surgeon for but sure. Who has the broader geographical market area? <laughs> Absolutely, right, heart surgeon, because you yes. get on a plane from uh, the Bay Area and you'd go to Boston for a heart surgeon, you wouldn't do, you'd never do that for a family doctor. You're going to look in your zip code. Zip code. Uh, and then third, who has the fewest competitors, right? right. So, so you make more money. You have a larger, larger, not smaller, geographical market area. You have fewer competitors. What's not to like about specialization? But that word just scares people in business. Ooh, Specialization, that sounds niche, that sounds narrow, that sounds confining, that sounds like, you know, I, 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 I hear all these terms about, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed, and my reply is, no, actually, I do, I want you to be pigeonholed. I want you to be, I want you to be boxed in. That's what a strategy is. <laughs> right, is right. To, to have a box. If you're this boundaryless company, you know, then, then you don't have a strategy. You need the, you need the foundational uh, walls of strategy as boundaries to define who you are and what you stand for and who you're trying to sell to. I I, I don't want to hear from my heart surgeon. Yeah, I dabble on the, the, this on the weekends. You know. Yeah, yeah I dabble. <laughs> or or you know, same in law, right? I mean, you you you, and you can tell, right? We've all had this experience. I certainly have. If you're going to a professional service provider, 
and asking them to, to, to do something that, that is just outside of their competency. And they're, you know they're faking it. And it just makes you so uncomfortable. I mean, that's, that's the way customers of all kinds of companies feel. Right. And Tim, you bring up two other advantages um, between the specialist and the generalist that I think are, are really key. The greatest degree of respect from the customer and the most sophisticated customers go to the specialist. Yeah, that, that's and, one of the uh, strongest arguments, and it's, it is often a place that I now start in my consulting work. I start with that question. Do you, do you want, do you, would you like to work for sophisticated, uh, smart, you know, good-paying customers? Because if you do, then there, there's a business strategy that will get you there. But if you if 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 you want to work for the smaller, less sophisticated, regional, local kinds of clients, you can do that. If you want to do that, you can do that. But these are two completely different strategies because the buyer, the sophisticated buyer of services, is looking for best in class. Right, and and you know I. It, on another topic, not to change the topic, this is so good, but um, another thing that I've learned from Peter Drucker, but then you've really put some meat around the bones on this so to, to really flesh out this idea, because at first it's kind of repelling, but the aim of marketing is to make selling superfluous. Yeah. That's what Peter Drucker said. And what are your thoughts on that? Oh, one of my all-time favorite uh, Drucker quotes, you know, of course I have like 23 favorite Drucker quotes, but <laughs> um, yeah, at the, his point here, it, and it just supports this idea of, uh, of a focused business strategy, it, he's saying that if you do a good enough job marketing, meaning if you have a positioning strategy and, that, that, and you, you, you invest in the, 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 the kinds of um, what we call inbound marketing activities that build your reputation as as a as a thought leader or as a, someone who knows what they're talking about who knows the industry if you do that well then you don't need to sell basically you don't have to hire an outbound salesperson who's sitting in an office dialing for dollars all day you you don't need that because the, the business is going to literally come to you wow. and i say this uh, all the time to the firms that i work with that the, the more folk my job is to make you as focused as you'll let me because i know the more focused you are, the less you're going to have to prospect for business. Right. And, and is there any better example than that of Apple? I know Ed, yeah. Ed, Ed got his new iPhone, but Apple doesn't have salespeople. Those people in those stores are customer relationship people that are trying to build a relationship with you. And people line up for their new products when they come out. It's kind of like Woodstock for nerds, but yep. um, they're not doing sales at Apple. Right. Correction, exactly. correction they have 300 million salespeople. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the people who buy their products, right? Yeah. They're called they're called their customers. Yeah, customers. Very true, very true. Well, well, we have to take our final break, folks, but uh, as a reminder, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. You can also follow the show live on Twitter, hashtag TSOE. We will be posting show notes, and we'll make sure to get all Tim's books up there. And uh, Tim, I believe you have a blog people can subscribe to. Is that true? Yes, it's uh, ignitionpropulsion.com. Excellent. We'll get the link up for that, too. And, folks, I, I highly recommend that. He puts out some very thought-provoking writing. But for now, we want to take a break and uh, go to our sponsor, Sage.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. Workplaces are only as strong as their teams. Teams are only as strong as their individual members. Are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level? We're here to help. Listen for Leading with Social Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Tim Williams. And Tim, we got a question from Melissa, and it's it's kind of a long question. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I know you've had a chance to look at it. What she did say is, on one side, she was writing to me, you seem to be recommending that firms work with the customers who value the most. You mentioned firing or outsourcing customers that have lower price points and are being provided with lower value as you are able to increase the value and price paid for your best customers. And, and I guess what she was asking is, um, you know, can you have both sets of customers in the same organization? What's your take on this? I, I'd say not, under, not in the same, under the same umbrella, not, not the same brand. Maybe the same company if you're willing to form a, uh, a disruptor brand or a... Um, um, you know, right. this is the idea that, that you have one firm that serves the high-value customers with the high-value offerings, and you have another brand that serves the customers that want lower co- costs. But these are two different business strategies that have two different cost structures and two different price structures, and, and we see this happening. This has happened in a big way in the advertising business where the big multinational uh, firms have all done this, and, of course, happening in, in law and accounting and lots of other places as well. Right. In, in the airlines, Tim, they call it, and my pricing mentor, Reed Holden, talks about this as dumbbell pricing. You know, if you look at an airline, you can have somebody in first class paying 14 grand, somebody sitting back in coach paying 200. He thinks that's too wide of a spread. He calls it dumbbell pricing. And I think that's kind of creating some confusion here because, I mean, obviously that is serving, you know, very different customers in the same airline, putting them on the same plane even. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the adaptive capacity model, right? Right. Yeah. This is a different this is a different concept. This is this is the idea, well let's have two different airplanes. Um, right. Or yeah. or like a Southwest versus a, a you know, a yeah. Singapore Airlines yeah. or something Southwest like that. Southwest is a low cost strategy and they they they've their whole business model supports it. They fly nothing but seven forty sevens and you know, that makes the maintenance easy and you know, they 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 have a much simpler business model that allows them to do that. That's been written about quite a bit. But you can do that in any kind of company, really. Any kind of company can do this if you want to serve two customers. The worst strategy is to try and serve uh, two different ki- kinds of customers by uh, by splitting 
splitting, you know, splitting it down the middle, and and an idea that you and Ed hate as much as I do, you know, a blended hourly rate, right? The, right. <laughs> the worst idea right. ever invented. <laughs> Absolutely. Tim, you know, in your first book, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but in the appendix, of course, you know, you talked about the need for timesheets and all that. And, and what I really want to focus on is your attitude on that has changed. Oh, my and gosh. How, how did that evolve? Well, first of all, I have to say, uh, Ron, that the, the there is a new edition of Take a Stand for Your Brand that was published three weeks ago. Oh, minus the append that appendix. All right, <laughs> and it's all right. Available <laughs> on, I don't on want Amazon. it. Too. I like the old one. Yeah, no, that's gone. Uh, and and my first uh, my first book had uh, other references throughout the book to time and hours and things like that. And so that's all now gone too in this new edition. So I have you to think about for that because. Uh, Obviously, this is an evolution that, that I've been through, and I know a lot of your listeners have, have, have been through. I guess we all have to some extent uh, where, um, you know, I, you, you say you've learned everything about advertising from me. I, I've learned everything I know about pricing from you uh, and from our other Verisage colleagues. So definitely uh, an evolution in, in thinking uh, and a change in, in actually changing your beliefs. That's, that's how I best, you know. And Tim, at that evolution, I mean, you know Roy Sutherland. We had yep. him on back in August and yep. just a phenomenal guy. But when we talked to him about the billable hour specifically in the advertising agency business, he said, well, good luck, you guys. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to overcome this. What's your opinion on that? Are we going to get rid of the billable hour in the advertising agency business? Well, with all due respect to, to Rory Sutherland, who's a brilliant guy, I would respectfully disagree with that. I, I think that's wrong. Um, I think, in fact, here's an even here, here's a more heretical point of view about um, about how agencies will make money. There, there's a view out there, and you know this maybe, Ron, from Tom Fenner and our friend at the 4As, American Association of Ad Agencies. He believes that, that, that agencies in the future maybe 2020, 2030, will make most of their revenue from intellectual property. Right. Yeah. And, and that the billable, the, the concept of a billable hour, billable, will just be irrelevant. Um, and so maybe that's what, that's what it will take to finally kill it. But I do think, it, I do think that, I, I predict that in that time frame, uh, we're, we're going to see a mass migration away from it. We're already starting to see it. Do you see any hope, Tim, of the big agencies ditching it, or is it going to be the smaller, medium-sized agencies first? Definitely the smaller, medium-sized firms, and I know that's that's true in, in other industries as well. I think that's where a lot of the innovation happens, is in the independents who feel like they've got the latitude. They're not public companies. They're not, they, they, they're not under the, the, you know, the... The microscope, uh, like the public companies are, so I think that's that's where the innovation so far has been coming from, and uh, it will hit the pub- big public companies last. Not first. last, yeah. That that's what I always think. That's yep. what I think too. I mean, yep. revolutions happen from the bottom up, right? Oh, yeah. Rarely from Never the top, the top down. down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Tim, this has just been fabulous, and and uh, so so happy that you could join us today. And we're, we'll definitely get links to your books, and and I'll I'll make sure I get the new edition. Of <laughs> yeah, Take I'll a send st- you the new edition. In fact, I I, <laughs> I was ready, Tim. I was ready to go around with an exacto knife to you everybody can, oh, who owned it and me. cut yeah, that appendix can, out. <laughs> you can now burn the old one, and a new one is on its way in the mail. <laughs> well, this has just been fantastic. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope you uh, will join us again. Absolutely. Uh, at, at some future date, it. and yeah. we can 
we can talk about some more of these issues. So, uh, Ed, what do we have uh, coming up next week? It's uh, pretty exciting. It is pretty exciting. We have another guest next week, Ron. And first, uh, thank you to Tim as well from me. Uh, next week, we have Jody Thompson from a company called Culture RX or uh, otherwise known as Go Row, uh, Jody and her partner Callie Rensselaer have created a movement for uh, around this idea of Row, which stands for Results Only Work Environment. And the book that they have, they actually have two books out, Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It and Why Managing Sucks and How to Fix It. The basic premise is, is that we need to define every position by its results only, no results, no job. And then once we put that in place, we can get rid of everything else. PTO, vacation, sick time, all gone, out the window, don't have to track it, have a nice life. Just get your, your job done and everything is hunky-dory. You know, I saw these guys. And I, Tim, I can't remember if you were there, but they presented Jody and her partner Kali pr- presented at uh, an ANA event that I was at. Yeah. And I, I just thought, wow, this their message fits in with our message so well about the knowledge worker and the whole timesheet issue and all of that. So, Tim, again, thank you so much. Uh, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll definitely have you back on. Okay, thanks. And Ed, right. thank you. And uh, folks, we'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week at Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and we'll have Jody Thompson of Culture RX talking about the Rove, the results-only work environment. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE or email myself or Ed at TSOE at Verisage.com. Folks, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.